0: He was the trainer of Justify for a little while. Now Rodolphe Brisset will try to beat the derby champ in the Preakness. We'll chat with the young trainer. Plus, should trainers have to undergo mandatory continuing education as other white-collar professionals like doctors have to do? Right now, very few states require it. We'll discuss all of this and more on this edition of In The Gate.
1: They're in the gate. They're in the gate in the gate they're
0: in the gate it's a head big finish this is in the gate espn's thoroughbred racing podcast my name is barry abrams you can follow me on twitter at babramsvoice. abrams voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. We know that in sports, there are feeder systems that get athletes from entry level to the top level. Baseball and hockey have minor leagues. Basketball has European and an NBA developmental league. But those notwithstanding, there are teams in the top leagues of all sports who don't often win and whose best players will end up eventually on marquee elite teams. In recent years, you could point to Giancarlo Stanton going from the Marlins to the Yankees as an example. Trainer Rodolphe Brisset has operated in horse racing's major leagues, so to speak, for 10 years as an assistant to Hall of Fame trainer Bill Mott. So when Brisset went out on his own a year ago, at the age of 33, he used his relationships with some of the sport's heavy hitters to land some decent business. The largest American racing and breeding operation, Windstar Farm, kept its ties with Brisset, but... In the manner of sports teams who marinate big stars only to lose them to marquee teams, Brisset's job for Winstar was to tend to the operation's two-year-olds before they wound up with the Bob Bafferts and Todd Pletchers of the world. In fact, Brisset even handled, for a little while, a colt named Justify. Maybe you've heard of him. But there was one two-year-old that Winstar did not send to another trainer. He stayed with Brisset. That horse's name is Quip, and two months ago, he surprised those who don't know his trainer's talent by pulling a 19-to-1 upset in the Tampa Bay Derby.
1: World of Trouble is trying to take him start to finish. Quip on the outside second. Up on the far outside, flame away. Swings wide for the drive as they straighten away for home. World of Trouble and Quip on the outside. They're locked in battle. Flame away. Racing erratically down to the wire. World of trouble along the rail, and Quip
0: on the outside. They're still heads apart. Quip is now going the better the two, and 19-1 on the winner. Quip had enough qualifying points to make it into the Kentucky Derby, but the decision was made to keep him back another two weeks and prepare him for the Preakness. That puts trainer Rodolphe Brisset in an interesting position, which we'll get into as we welcome the French board trainer here to In The Gate. What was the reason for bypassing the Kentucky Derby and waiting for the Preakness with Quip?
2: Well, the main reason was the t- three-week time frame between the Arkansas Derby and the Derby were too short for Quip to run again. You know, He showed us a lot of signs where he, he didn't want to go back on the track and run uh, another race at three weeks. So that's the main reason why we bypassed. It was a tough decision, but an easy one too. You know, It's uh, the horse first.
0: Now you obviously worked with Justify when he was younger. Did you have any idea he would become this dominant?
2: Uh that would be lying to say yes, you know. The horse was very forward, he was a superb superb good looking horse, good size, good mentor. Everything is he's, he's done with us when he was with us he's done everything very easily. I was able to bring him myself Every time he breathes here in Kinland, and he always done it very easily, now it would be very arrogant, I guess, to now say, oh, yes, I know he was going to be like this. No, he was a, a pleasure to be around. He's done everything very easily, but I would never have guessed he would become who he became, you know?
0: How do you feel about trying to beat Justify with a horse owned by the very same people who own Justify?
2: Well, it's horse racing. So the, the good thing about data ownership, they are very good horsemen and they sing by the horse. So bypassing the derby, we know we were going to add to the prickness, nest and we know that group of owners have uh, three horses to win the, the derby. One of them did one. So now you got to look at the picture saying we set up Quip to run in a, in a prick nest and he's ready to do that. So we have to give him the opportunity, and he he deserves a shot to try to win the Preakness. Now, on the other side, I think what Mr. Walden has been saying is if Justify will be the next Triple Crown winner, he's going to beat Quip in the Preakness. It doesn't matter who's going to run against Justify. Justify is going to have to win the next two. So maybe people doesn't don't really get it the way we think, But I think it's very fair for Quip. He deserves to have a shot at one of the classics. We felt like the Preakness was the the best race for his uh, aptitude, you know, like um, the Milan 316 may have been the best distance for him. And the five weeks between the Arkansas Derby and the Preakness, it's the perfect timing. So we feel comfortable about it.
0: Quip has the lead by two and a half lengths on the turn. Boxing Glove is second on the outside ahead at the top of the short stretch. Here comes Quip working his way toward the eighth pole. A four-length lead, a three-length lead. Boxing Glove coming after the leader. Quip now opens back up on a five-length margin into the final furlong. Oscar Blues in a tussle with Boxing Glove for that runner-up spot. Quip is long gone. Quip, Florent Giroux, winning it. Quip won his first two races last year, then disappointed in the Kentucky Jockey Club stakes on Thanksgiving weekend on a wet track. He finished 7th that day, but then he jumped up in March to win the Tampa Bay Derby, as we heard. What do you think made the difference for him?
2: Well, it didn't really disappoint us in the Kentucky Jockey Club. It just, I think we got a lot of excuses. Couple think we may have made a couple mistakes on our part, uh, on my part, I guess I can say. Like what? And, uh, you know, we may have overlooked the PPs. The race was set up to be a very fast race on the paper and we draw the outside and and we take Quip out of his game you know that Quip got a lot of tactical speed and he likes to be going forward and we we did let him break but after that we may have want to want to try to saddle and he didn't really want to saddle so I think it's something we learned from you know it's, that's one thing we learned from mistake, and you just have to try to don't make the same mistake twice so you know, we kind of regroup after that race and then we point him for the Tampa Derby and he, he proves to us he, he belongs with that group, you know.
0: What do you think made the difference in his outstanding performance that day?
2: I mean, a lot of things, you know, uh, like the track. We got a good setup, the race setup pretty good for him, you know, and then why he makes the difference, it's is just a very quality off and he just put himself where he could win the race and, and when Florent asked him the, the run, he he just uh, give his best, and he all done. So it just, uh, it just, it was just a, a very good race.
0: How did you feel watching that, having never won a stakes race as a trainer?
2: Well, it was yeah, it was pretty special for us. We owed a lot to Quip. He pulled us on the map. You know, he won our, our first stakes, and since he won his first race, uh, people have been talking about him. So if they talk about him, they talk about us too. So um, he, he was very special. We've been doing a lot of work on him. I ride him myself every day and uh, my wife was with me and I have a lot of very close friends were, were with us uh, when he crossed the wire. So, yeah, it was a very special moment. And winning a big race for um, for Winstar, uh, China Horse and SF Racing uh, was very important for me too because they've been supporting us. So it was very special that day and then we really, really enjoyed it uh, for a couple of days, and then we regrouped and went back to work, you
0: know. Yeah, you mentioned Windstar. I mean, they have horses with Bob Baffert, of course, and with Todd Pletcher and others, and he had you look after a bunch of two-year-olds last year, including Justify, with the knowledge that most would go to other trainers at some point. What do you think was the reason Windstar left Quip with you?
2: Well, Quip was a little bit, maybe a little bit difficult, maybe a little bit immature at the farm, and the world. and come up to me and pretty much have his his mind set up on having quip transferring quip from Windstar Farm, the pre-training to to us here in Kinland. And I I guess I got along with the horse pretty good. And it just felt he may be in the best interest for the horse to stay with us and not been changing to somebody else. And then maybe the fact that I get on him every day was another factor who helped to make the decision. To have the horse stay with us, and I'm very thankful for that because, like I say, I get to be very attached to the horse, and then uh, he put us on the map.
0: Well, you said you get along with him. What happens to Quip when you're with him, when you're on him?
2: Well, it's just a relationship. It's nothing pretty difficult to explain. They're not robots, you know. They are uh, they horses. They have feelings. They have uh, you know they have bad days and good days. And we just, I guess, the the horse know me, and I know him, so he helps. To get days after days uh, of training uh, better, and and also enjoy what he's doing, and and he he runs as good as he show, uh, you know, in the morning. You, know?
0: trainer Rodolphe Brze joins us here on in the gate. He'll send out Quip to challenge Kentucky Derby winner Justify in the Preakness. Now you had worked for Bill Mott for ten years before going out on your own last spring. Worked for trainer Patrick B and Cone before that. You said that at first. You didn't feel mature enough to go out on your own, but that everything fell into place and it was the right time. What does that mean?
2: Well, you know, if people put a lot of hope on me, you know, I, I, at one point it was it was going to be the goal to, to go on my own and people are expecting good things about us, you know. So I think it was it was the right time because I was old enough and I was, maybe responsible enough. And like I say, I met my wife and everything kind of fell at the right place and it was time to give it a try.
0: Meeting a spouse definitely has a way of doing that. Wait till you have a child. See how your life changes after that. Uh, Now, you said that uh, the Tampa Bay Derby win with Quip, people started talking about you because they were talking about him. What has that Tampa Bay Derby win done for you as far as other owners calling to ask you to train for them?
2: Well, we got you know we got a lot of publicity. Maybe we, we may have proved we can train a horse and deal with being on a big picture on, a, on the horse racing because the derby it's, it's where you want to be. But, of course, the publicity and everything came with it, and I'm very uh, thankful for that because it, it does help. It's just he it, it put our face uh, over there and... And of course, we picked up some business, but we will pick up even more. Well, we
0: certainly wish you the very best of luck. Rodolphe Brisset, thank you so much for a few minutes and best of luck in the
2: Preakness. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call.
0: We're going to take a short break here on In The Gate. But when we come back, should horse racing trainers have to undergo continuing professional education? Right now, very few states require it. We'll get into that when we come back. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Horse flesh and dirt and grass are, at their essence, the same now as they've been since before recorded time. What you learn as a young person about how a horse is built, how it runs and things like that, don't really change. But a lot else has changed when it comes to the business of horse racing. And those things keep changing over time. It's all that pesky administrative stuff. Isn't it always, though? Most people in all walks of life who own small businesses will tell you that the hardest part of running a business is running a business. Providing the actual service is the easy part. In racing, those pesky little things include medication and rules governing them, workers' comp issues, and things like that. In order to stay on top of the most recent developments in these kinds of things, it would make sense for trainers to undergo continuing education. A lot of professionals do that sort of thing, mandatory coursework in order to maintain their status. The American Medical Association requires doctors to do it. Lawyers, teachers, even medical imaging repairmen have to do it. But of the 38 states that conduct horse racing, only four have any requirement for continuing education for trainers. If you think about it, the trainer is essentially the CEO of his or her own little enterprise— whether a stable the size of Todd Pletcher's or a stable of under 10 horses at a minor track. The trainer is in charge of the health and safety of not just the horses, but the riders and people who work around the horses. That's an important job. Now, Dan Ross of the Thoroughbred Daily News recently wrote an extensive article about this issue, and we've asked him to come on this show to capsulize both sides of this story for us. And we welcome Dan Ross for the first time here to Win the Gate. Good to have you, sir. So first, give us an idea of what states have requirements for trainer continuing education and what kinds of things are they?
1: There's actually very few states. There's only two states that have mandated it. New York is one and they require four hours every year. And uh, there's a varied amount of courses that, that trainers can take. There's That trainers association have put on courses that cover things like workers compensation and department of labor Labor regulations and you know sort of basic, basic horsemanship kind of thing then they can also go online there's the jockey club have a main resource a website that trainers can go to and on there there's a series of sort of they're sort of more advanced you know they're more technical they really get into the veterinary side of things as you know they get into there's one of course on on bisphosphonates which are drugs to treat degenerative bone issues and sometimes i know that the you know the equine medical director of new york scott palmer he apparently puts courses on periodically i don't think they're very often but i think they can attend them um, seminars kind of thing and uh he can sort of further elaborate on the veterinary side of things and uh So they can attend, you know, they can fulfill their yearly quota with that. Otherwise, there's, you know, I know that Colorado, they require it, uh, they've mandated it, but they, they offer a waiver, quote unquote, that trainers can waive this requirement if courses aren't available that meet the approval of the commission. So there's a, you know, you've got a way out there. A couple of other states have mandated it in the past, but they dropped it when it came to the implementation of it. And uh, like I say, California, they've uh, they proposed this rule to implement mandatory continued education for trainers when they renew their license. And if that is part, it's out for public comment right now. And if it, you know, if it's all, all goes to plan, that will be imp- implemented in 2020. But, you know, aside from those handful it's, uh you know, there's nobody's picked up the baton. It's, um, you know, slim pickings. I thought it was four
0: states. It's only two that have the requirement.
1: Yeah. that actually mandate it. And, you know, and then there was Indiana and South Dakota. They had mandated it, but when it came to implementation, um, and they tried it a few years ago, I think it was, I think Indiana was around 2010, 2011. And that's when there wasn't that centralized database that jockey club now offers. So, they didn't have that and it was just the difficulty the, you know, the logistical and technical difficulties of implementing it at the time. So um they dropped it.
0: Well yeah, let's talk about some of the reasons that continuing education isn't mandatory everywhere, including financial and boys boring and all that kind of thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's two main I suppose you can boil it down to two categories. The main one was and has been historically all those logistical problems, right? There's very few trainers just that have runners in one state, right? You know, that typically they run them in multiple states. And so, okay, so I'm based in California, trainer in California, and I want to run my horses in Arizona and Washington state. Some require it and some don't. And, you know, say I'm required to do four hours of continuing education to get licensed in Arizona, but I'm not in Washington or I'm not in California, I'm not required it, but I am in Arizona, then so okay, so I want to start, I'm going to start like 10 or 15 horses in Arizona. Do I have to then go to Arizona and sit for four hours and, you know, fulfill my requirement there? And so there's no centralized resource to kind of make this uniform. So it's kind of like this patchwork quilt of different requirements that make fulfilling it really difficult and a real headache for trainers who are, you know, they're very busy and and often unable to fulfill that requirement. So that's historically been the issue. That's why Indiana and South Dakota, when they mandated it, they, they're unable to implement it. They have fear of scaring away trainers, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, and the other thing about it is, as any of us parents can attest, if you're going to mandate something, there better be a consequence to your child for not doing it. And I don't think there is one here.
1: Yeah, and you can see that. So New York implemented it last year, and it was a yearly requirement you had to fulfill your 4-hour 4-hour quota every year, and at the end of last year, there were quote unquote many trainers who had failed to complete it. You know, no one that I'm aware of has had their license revoked, and, you know, they wouldn't tell me I I, I reached out to the gaming commission, state gaming commission, and, you know, how many still haven't done it. Uh, they didn't give me a figure, but I'm assuming that there's any number that still haven't. But as I'm aware, no one's had their license revoked or renewed. And in, in Colorado, you've got that waiver right now, you know, that if there aren't courses available that meet the approval of the commission, then they don't have to do it. You can't really blame them because it's very difficult. You need a It needs an all in from all the states to really make this a viable proposition. And there isn't an all in in the states but now you do have that centralized database offered by the jockey club and they offer that those series of courses it's not many but i know that they're working on them and they're working to link them up with the uc davis who do have a lot of online courses you've got it right there so if states if they haven't the resources to put on seminars in-person seminars for the trainers there they, they can say okay just go to the jockey club's website they can track it they're able to track usage, you know, and provide confirmation that the trainers have fulfilled such and such a course, which took such and such amount of time, you know. So uh, having that centralized database has made a huge difference now, and um, which leads on to the second thing, which is cultural thing. As you talked about, you mentioned it just a little while ago, you know, about uh, trainers kind of, you know, summing <laughs> their nose at the idea of being forced to take, courses in training right and you know that was to be expected you know racing's a very it's a you know insular little world you know it's uh it's this odd little world and it's sort of very rooted and very you know very grounded in tradition and that you know you you see that with the trainers especially the old timers you know who are been doing it for years and you can't really blame them in a lot of ways you know they're uh, proven trainers proven veterans who've been doing it for years you can Kind of understand what you know why they might sort of you know bulk at the idea of, of of being forced to take courses in something they've been doing for years so um it's um uh, it's very interesting
0: dan ross of the thoroughbred daily news is with us here on in the gate now all of that said tell us about the push being made to mandate trainer continuing ed
1: yeah the the push that's been going on for quite a while i think you know it really there were it really came to sort of you know wider consciousness in 2006 in the uh welfare and safety of the racehorse summit back in 2006 that was the first one that was put on that was organized by the jockey club and the grace and jockey club research foundation they put that on and I know it was proposed then, and I think since then, there has been real concerted effort among a lot of, you know, prominent organizations to push ahead with this. But it's like anything in, in horse racing. It's, it's anything that really requires pickup from all states, all jurisdictions. It's very slow moving and very sluggish. And I think they found it very frustrating. The fact that New York managed to do it last year and the fact that California, should they implement this new rule, I think that'll be significant but you still need buy-in from all the other states or a significant portion of the other states as well so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years
0: do trainers generally understand their roles as essentially ceos of their own small businesses i mean people in charge have to deal with that pesky admin stuff you know like workman's comp and whatever in any line of work
1: (laughs) i'll have to be careful what i say here you know so uh uh i've heard it being described by someone else not myself but i kind of i get it kind of a uh, in so many ways that training is kind of like a, a big boys club kind of in so many ways you know it's kind of it's an unusual it's an unusual world and it's uh i'm trying to be diplomatic as so i don't jot myself in anything here but uh, yeah they do do i think that Trainers are really, you know, as a whole, there are obviously some who are really on the ball about it. Like Dale Romans, he's really on the ball about immigration issues. He knows how the law works. He knows about, you know, H2B visas. He knows what he can do. He knows what he can't do. And he really sticks by the rules and he's really a pioneer in that. But as a whole, do the training colony, you know, are they all on the ball about that? No. Should they be? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, things like that, things like workers comp, you look at the training colony as a whole, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lack of awareness and knowledge about these issues. And this is an opportunity. This is a real opportunity. This is, and you see this in New York. I, I spoke to Andy Belfiore, who, who organizes some of the seminars in New York, and she said that's where they've had most of the pickup. Those are the sorts of courses that have proven most popular with the trainers, those that really get down into the weeds of of things like Department of Labor regulations, which are changing all the time. You know, it's an arcane world, isn't it? You know, (laughs) the world of Department of Labor regulations, it's arcane anyway, and it's constantly changing. So, yeah, this is a real opportunity to uh, disseminate really necessary and pretty technical information to the people who really need to know it.
0: As diplomatic as you are trying to be, I think you have a, a, a career coming in politics. Well, thank you so much for a few minutes, Dan Ross. This is a very interesting topic. Thanks for bringing it to us.
1: No, thank you, Barry. Appreciate Appreciate it. That's good talking to you.
0: Our thanks to Dan Ross and Rodolphe Brisset. We've heard so many stories of tracks closing in recent years, like Hollywood and now like Hazel Park so it's rare to hear of a rebirth in the racing industry at a place that for the last five years has been dark. But it seems that colonial downs near Richmond will soon start up again, and if you probe this story just a bit, you'll see that a Native American casino is part of the racetrack plans, and existing gaming license creates the fit. Now, if this is just a standard marriage of a racetrack and casino, I see the horsemen living on borrowed time, The casinos use racing as an entree to establish their businesses, then kick the horsemen out without a dime. But if officials are preparing for a day which may come soon, when sports betting is allowed across the land, then this might be a proactive step to build sustainable racing. Who knows, thoroughbreds might get the upper hand.